This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 25th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we hear about what the genome sequence of the titsy fly can tell us about sleeping sickness. And David Grimm is here to give us a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. The titsy fly is notorious for its ability to transmit sleeping sickness, a deadly disease caused by a tiny parasite called trypanosoma, which is carried inside the titsy fly. I spoke to staff writer Liz Panisi about what the fly's genome can tell us about preventing this disease. So the titsy fly is important because it transmits sleeping sickness and a disease called nagana in cattle. In humans, you get sleeping sickness from a bite of a titsy fly. The titsy fly has in it a parasite called a trypanosome, and the parasite lives most of its life in the gut of the titsy fly, but when it's ready, it moves to the salivary glands, and then when the titsy fly bites a human, it, it infects the human. At first, you get headaches and fever and joint pain. But then after the parasite multiplies in the human body, it moves into the central nervous system. And there it can cause strange behavior, lack of coordination, confusion, makes you very sleepy, and eventually can be fatal if not treated with drugs. And so about how many people a year get the disease or die from the disease? So only about 10,000 people a year die from the disease, but there are 70 million people at risk of getting the disease. And this is what has people concerned because this is a disease found in sub-Saharan Africa. It affects people who are farmers or fishers or hunters And if the titsy fly population increases or the percentage of infected titsy flies increases, all these people are at risk. Mm -hmm. 
So in addition to its role in disease transmission, the titsy fly has some pretty unique traits for a fly. What oddities did we know about before the genome was sequenced? So we know, of course, that the titsy fly is a bloodsucker. But, say, mosquitoes, they're also blood suckers. But in mosquitoes, only the females suck blood, and both sexes also use plant nectar for food. For the tissy fly, it's basically the vampire of flies. Both sexes suck blood, and that's all they eat is blood. And so the other thing that's kind of unusual about this insect is that it it's a live bearer. So what happens is the female incubates a single embryo inside and nourishes it by milk that's secreted by specialized milk glands. And then it gives birth to a larva. Let's actually talk about the genome sequence here. What new insights did the sequence bring? So the sequence tells a lot about sort of the molecular basis of these unusual traits. The researchers found genes for about... 12,300 proteins. Among those proteins were 250 in the salivary glands that are used in the sucking and biting and getting of the blood. They discovered eight new milk proteins. What's interesting is they not only sequenced the genome, they also did studies of gene expression in various tissues so they could figure out, well, what proteins and what genes were active in just the milk gland. And in their studies, they discovered that when the female is pregnant, it revs up the gene activity in the milk gland by 40%. And that activity can account for about half of all the gene activity in the fly during that period. Wow. So they also found some interesting things in the sequence that relate to their sense of sight and smell. That's right. That's right. Obviously, the the sense of smell and the sense of sight are really important for finding your host. And it turns out that the titsy fly has fewer genes for olfactory receptors and genes for taste receptors than, say, a fruit fly. But it has more genes for proteins that detect carbon dioxide, which would help them find you or me or some cow. (laughs) Okay. And then in terms of vision, they have a special attraction to the color blue-black? They do. They do. And they actually, uh, so they have these traps for catching titsy flies in the field, and they're all this pretty blue color. And they found the gene for the receptor that is actually sensitive to that particular color wavelength. Very cool. These researchers sequenced more than just the titsy fly genome, they also looked at the DNA in the microbes that it hosts. What do we learn about them? We learned a couple of things. For one of the microbes called Wigglesworthier, kind of a cute name, they had actually already sequenced two different species of that before they had the genome of the tootsie fly. And they did sequence it again. And what they have realized is that this Wigglesworthier has the pathways for making vitamin B. But the titsy fly genome does not have the pathway for making vitamin B, but it does have genes for proteins that can transport vitamin B. So the thinking is that the titsy fly depends on this bacterium to get its vitamin B. So as of yet, there aren't any vaccines for sleeping sickness, and the drugs that are used to treat it have pretty serious side effects. 
how might these findings from sequencing the genome either help prevent or treat this disease? The hope is that you would get some hints from the genome about proteins that could be targets for some sort of chemicals that would reduce the population of the titsy fly or somehow make the titsy fly resistant to the parasite. So one idea suggested by the findings is that if you were to develop a chemical inhibitor of the transcription factor that controls milk protein production, for example, then you might be able to make it impossible for the fly to give birth. And so you could reduce the titsy fly population in that way. Liz, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. Liz Panisi writes about the titsy fly genome in this week's issue. You can read her story and the full report on the genome by Atardo and colleagues at www.sciencemag.org. Next up, we have Nadia Whitehead, intern for our online daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the king of carnivores. Humans are not the only threat to the big animals of the African Serengeti. Since the 1990s, lions appear to have been enemy number two for cheetahs and wild dogs. Nadia, what evidence is there that lions were not being very nice to their fellow predators? Right. Research in 1994 found that lions were killing more than 50% of cheetah cubs in Serengeti National Park. For wild dogs, it was just as bad. As the lion population surged, their number declined. Eventually, wild dogs vanished completely from the park. So the question that came out of this earlier research is, what's the best way to conserve all of these species? We don't want to kill off the cheetahs in the course of saving the lions. How did the researchers look further into this question? Researchers decided to conduct a study to see if lions really were suppressing the populations of cheetah and wild dogs. Using long-term data that monitored the number of lions, cheetahs, and wild dogs in the park, they took a look at how the three animals used the park's various habitats. They then calculated what the chances were of a cheetah and wild dog actually running into a lion were. The results showed that the increasing number of lions didn't trigger a drop in cheetahs. The cheetahs actually remained stable over time, even though they were losing their cubs. However, lions were spelling the end for dogs. Dogs that did survive were found on the edge of the park. How did the dogs and the cheetahs end up with such a different result from being nearby the lions? The team thinks that the wild dogs react differently to lions. They think that they work really hard to avoid lions in the wild and survive only by getting kicked out of the habitat. On the other hand, cheetahs use the same area as lions, but carefully monitor them and stay away. Cheetahs also aren't as noisy as wild dogs, so they attract less attention. (laughs) Does the fact that these two different species have two different tactics for taming the lion threat, does that have an impact on the strategies that might be used for their conservation? The paper highlights that cheetahs are pretty adaptable creatures and are good at taking care of themselves, so we really don't need to be worrying about them. For wild dogs, it's a different story. There's a new sense of urgency to conserve them, and scientists are suggesting that we make larger reserves with densely wooded areas where dogs have been found to do better. Next up, we have a story on just how good monkeys are at math. There's a long-standing debate on the abilities of animals to do math. 
that is actually making calculations rather than judging size or comparing quantity. But a new study looking at this question found some very math-like abilities in macaques. So, Nadia, how do you train a monkey to do math? Well, it took four months, but <laughs> researchers were able to teach three macaques to associate the numbers 0 through 9 and 15 letters with the values between 0 and 25. When given the choice between two symbols, the monkeys typically chose the larger value to get more droplets of water, orange juice, or soda as a reward. They then tried to see if they could add the symbols together. They would give them a choice between a single symbol and a sum of two numbers. By the end of the project, they showed that they could add the two symbols and compare the sum to a single symbol. So they weren't just comparing symbols. They're doing math with two symbols and then comparing that with a third symbol. How do we know they weren't just memorizing an even larger set of symbols that included these combinations? So the researchers definitely made sure it wasn't a process of memorization, but true addition. They taught the animals an entirely new set of symbols using Tetris-like blocks instead of numbers and letters. Even with these blocks, the macaques showed the ability to add again and calculated combinations they had never even seen before. And the macaques did learn how to do this, but they weren't actually very good at it, right? <laughs> yeah, they definitely aren't mathematicians, and they were not always 100% accurate. They showed a tendency to underestimate a sum of two numbers when the two were close in value. For instance, they would choose the number 13 over the sum of 8 and 6. So this is kind of a systematic bias in the monkey math mind. So what does that teach us about the way numbers and calculations are processed in general? So those errors that I mentioned show us that monkeys pay more attention to a big number than a little one, which goes against this theory that says the brain always underestimates the value of large numbers. It shows that estimating values is key in the ability to add. Finally, we have a story on the importance of the Y chromosome. The mammalian sex-determining chromosomes, the X and the Y, are very different from each other in the number of genes they carry, the shape of the genetic material itself, and their basic size. The X is about 150 million base pairs, while the Y is about 50 million base pairs long. We've known the sequence of the human genome for quite a while now, including the X and Y chromosomes. What new way did someone come up with for looking into the Y chromosome? So we all know that males have an X and Y chromosome, while females have two X chromosomes. However, the X chromosome has a lot more genes within it, about 2,000, compared to the Y chromosome, which has about 100 genes. Scientists wanted to look at why the Y chromosome had so few, believing that perhaps these very few genes are more important than we think. They ended up conducting a study to see which genes in the Y chromosome are shared across various species. What kinds of similarities did they see in these chromosomes? They looked at chromosomes in multiple animals, including humans, chimpanzees, and mice. And they found that in addition to the genes that determine sex, there are 18 genes that are highly similar between all the species. These gene functions include controlling the expression of genes in many other areas of the genome and regulating a lot of different processes. What about those of us who possess two X chromosomes? Do we have these highly important 18 genes? The short answer is that we women do have these genes. In fact, we have two copies of them. What the researchers noticed was that these are dose-dependent genes. They need two copies in order to function. In men, one copy is on the Y chromosome. So these Y chromosome genes 
appear to be important because they've stuck around for so long. But what about their exact role in these organisms? Is that the next step in the research? Exactly. Scientists now plan to look in detail about the exact role of these genes, what they do, where they're expressed in the body, and which are required for survival. They also want to know how these genes affect risk for disease or disease symptoms, because they clearly do a lot more than just establish whether someone is male or not. What else is on the site this week, Nadia? We also have a piece up about how fish can raise their voices or yell, and there's some pretty neat sounds that come with that piece. Uh, We also have a story about how a mysterious quacking sound coming from the ocean has been solved. In Insider, one of our latest stories is about how the number of Indian students applying to graduate school in the U.S. is skyrocketing. So be sure to check out all these stories and more on the Science website. Thanks, Nadia. Thanks, Sarah. Nadia Whitehead is the intern for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Hey, podcast listeners. Thank you to everyone who sent an email or tweet over the past week. It has been amazing learning from our listeners and hearing what they think will improve the show. Apparently, we are skimping on math stories. If you didn't write in after last week's request, please consider doing so this week. As you may have noticed, we've been producing a shorter show since the beginning of 2014. The podcast isn't going away, but we'd like to hear from you now because we're looking for ways to improve the show. So email us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. I do read all the emails that come into that account. Or tweet to us at Science Magazine. I read all those too. Let us know if you want more content from Science, more from the daily news site, more news stories, the topics you like. You get the picture. And tell us a little bit about yourself how you found the show, what you do while listening, and maybe what your connection with science is. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled programming. And that concludes the April 25th, 2014 edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, you know where to write us. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.